0: are real geniuses richard jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you he hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field sleep science cancer stem cells ketogenic diets and more here come the geniuses this is the finding genius podcast with richard jacobs
1: hello this is richard jacobs with the finding genius podcast and mark e hay He's the co-director and regents professor uh, OSC and Harry and Linda Teasley Chair at Georgia Tech and the School of Biological Sciences. And we're gonna talk about uh, marine ecology and conservation and restoration of coral reefs and uh, you know, areas affected by uh, invasive species and by humankind. So, Mark, thanks for coming.
2: Yeah, thanks for inviting me.
1: Yeah, So uh, in your own words, what's your research about currently?
2: Um, well, we do a lot of different things, but most of what we're focused on at present is um, trying to understand the biotic interactions on reefs and how those might be um, tweaked in small ways to cause big positive effects on reefs as opposed to a lot of our management efforts which are um, sort of herculean and may not be having the results we want them to have.
1: Oh, so when do we intervene... I mean, you know, deliberately, I guess, to try to restore a reef that's in trouble. But what um, what do you see as like the big tipping points for reefs? You know, where they go, they improve or they go bad?
2: Well, what has happened in my academic lifetime, in other words, I started working in the Caribbean and the Mid to late 70s, and there was about 60% cover of live coral, and now it's between about 6 and 10%. So we've lost 80 or 90% of all the corals in the Caribbean. Jesus, We've lost um, half or more of everything in the Pacific up until a couple of years ago when we lost half of what was left along the Great Barrier Reef. So it's in dramatic decline. In other words, I have 30-year-old kids, and I can't show them a caribbean reef um a typical one of when they were born it just doesn't really exist anymore wow Uh, you know so it's a little like going to colorado and there are no aspens or coming to georgia and there are no pines you know it's it's fundamentally different than it was and that has happened very rapidly Um, and so we're trying to find out um, one, what's causing that, and there are, there are multiple factors and people argue, is it pollution? Is it overfishing? Is it global change? Is it diseases? And the answer is yes. Uh, it's, it's all of those things. <clears throat> but we're kind of trying to move from cataloging a demise to saying, what can we do about it um, that's effective? And um, much of that for us is focused on... Um, chemical signaling and trying to understand that. In other words, most most organisms on earth don't have either eyes or ears. And so they run from the thing next to them or eat it or mate with it based on chemical signals. And so that's sort of a instruction manual for how communities work. Um, but we don't really understand that language very well. So we're trying to translate that language to give us more insight into especially coral reefs and how they work and how we might tweak those interactions uh, to have better outcomes on reef restoration efforts in, in many different oh. ways. And we can get into some of the specifics in a bit.
1: Yeah, yeah, definitely. So what are, what are um, what's the predominance of organisms in a healthy reef and then in the reefs that we see, for the most part, that have been damaged, what's left and what's gone?
2: Yeah, so um, on a, I don't want to say normal because normal's not good now, on a historically normal reef, um, there would be a lot of coral cover there, that generates a lot of structural complexity in places for fishes and other things to hide and to move around. And it's sort of the condo builders of the reef. And then on today's reef, what has happened in large part is those corals have died or been killed by seaweeds and the seaweeds have overgrown um, those areas, and so we now kind of have seaweed meadows that are complex, not not nearly as complex, and not nearly as structurally um, beneficial to other organisms as the corals were. And there's been I mean, a lot.
1: Are those are seaweeds? Mm-hmm. Are they like algal blooms? You know, an abundance yes. of certain nutrients cause them.
2: It's it's not necessary to have more nutrients. You know, there are arguments about that, and some people argue that it is because we've nutrified areas. But in fact, since the 19, late 1950s and early 1960s, whenever anyone put up cages on coral reefs that kept um, herbivores out—the fishes that eat seaweeds—then you got these seaweed blooms, even at low nutrient levels. And so, overfishing of fish that eat plants is a big deal on reefs. The Herbivory by these fish can be—they oh, can be taking anywhere from a few thousand up to over a hundred thousand bites per meter square per day on the bottom and eating more than 90 percent of the production every day. Um, and so they, they're kind of little chainsaws and little lawnmowers that, that kept seaweeds low on the reef, allowed corals to settle, grow, and do well. Um, what
1: about um, pairing a farm fishery with a coral reef, like, like letting cows out into the pasture they have the fish go out to the reef and feed and then come back home.
2: Yeah, it, it turns out that um, people haven't tried that really, but things um, that might interfere with that, it, it's surprising that, um, like on a reef we were studying in Fiji, there were about 29 species of bigger herbivorous fish. But only about four of those did almost all the feeding on the bigger algae that were around. The, so the rest of them were lawnmowers. They grazed little little turfs, little fuzz down the bottom. Um, and so <clears throat> those were all important in keeping um, seaweeds low on reefs when they were juveniles. But once they'd sort of escaped that juvenile stage and gotten bigger, there were only about four species that were really important in removing the larger algae. And unfortunately, some of those, most of those four species were ones people like to eat. And so, you know, we were able to go in and tell the chiefs and stuff in the villages where we were working, you know, you don't have to starve to keep your reefs healthy, but if you would back off on these particular species of fish, it'll help a lot in terms of eating down these competing algae some of which uh, make chemicals that kill corals and things as well. So some of them make, what are called allelopathic chemicals, things that are sort of poisonous to other organisms, and they kind of deploy those on their surfaces. And as they brush up against corals, um, they can cause them to bleach and die.
1: But has anyone approached these, um, you know, these small populations and said, don't just lay off the fish, but deliberately farm these other ones?
2: Yeah, there's the, the... there aren't very many of these tropical fishes that people know how to farm. In other words, um, some of the the little Nemo type, what people recognize as Nemo, is farmed big time. But that's done in the United States, in um, Tennessee, of all places, is <laughs> grows out and transports more of those than any any place else in the world, to my. Um, you know, many of the ones that are important herbivores, um, people have just not worked out how to farm them. They're not uh, like salmon or trout or catfish that have been important enough sort of agricultural um, focuses for people to figure out how to do that. And, and the, I guess the other thing on this, we have um, done some experiments where we moved fish from healthy reefs over to less healthy reefs um and or or different kinds of reefs and tried to get them to stay there and when we released them for the most part what happened is is they wandered around in this new territory for two to thirty minutes acted sort of nervous and something ate them So um, it turns out to be really important to kind of know your home territory and know where the cracks and crevices are. And you'd you'd see these individuals we just released, you know, something would get after them and they'd run into a overhang, sort of a little cave and another fish would be in there and drive them out and then the grouper or varicuda or something would eat them. So it's, you know, it's not as straightforward as releasing cows in a place where we've, you know, killed all the predators. You know our our cow pastures yeah. used to be you know kind of covered up with dire wolves and three species of saber toothed tigers, you know those things are still out on the reef, but they're they're not in Indiana anymore in the cornfield,
1: yeah, no it makes sense um <clears throat> what happens to the local ecology when uh, a reef starts to go downhill like what are you know I don't know if people know all the effects, I'm sure they don't like, what have you observed
2: yeah, there's a lot of consequences of that um. Meaning, so where we're working in Fiji and, and French Polynesian, Solomon Islands and stuff, people are really dependent on reefs for food if they're along the coast. A lot of the villagers are. And once these reefs degrade, you have a lot less fish biomass. Um, some types of fishes just leave altogether and so their food security is threatened. Um, in addition, when you get big storms, this uh, topographic structure that the, the corals make is like a big, hard, um, porous seawall. And you'll get these 20-foot waves coming in and they crash on the on the structurally part of that coral reef that is often a few hundred meters offshore. And it it just sort of dissipates all that energy and it really protects the coastal villages and stuff from storms. Um, There are some places along Fiji where they were actually harvesting the reef, just tearing it up with crowbars and selling it in the aquarium industry. And when we had some big storms, the villages that they'd done that in front of uh, got flooded. And the ones terrible, yeah, still had reefs in front of them, uh, did quite well. And then you also, many of these, especially the smaller island nations, just don't have a lot of economy. They're, they're, you know, they can't really compete with large island nations in terms of uh, agriculture or, um, you know, producing items, manufacturing things, shipping stuff in and out. And so they have to depend on tourism. And tourists like to come to places where there are beautiful reefs. And so the the locals along the places where we were had set aside some marine protected areas, and in those areas where they didn't fish and and didn't basically didn't go and use them at all, the coral cover was about 60 percent, and seaweeds were zero to two percent. Um, where they fished, um, it was just the reverse: the corals were four to 16 percent of the bottom instead of 60, and the seaweeds were 50 to 90 percent of the bottom instead of zero to two percent and so the villagers could you know tell the people at the hotels look you want to come see a nice reef pay us a few bucks and we'll we'll lead you through our marine protected area and it was income for the village um so what
1: about rotating so yeah, if you ever you know what is the point of no return for a reef and instead of trying to force fish back there and like you said they get confused and eaten how can you naturally build a reef back what are some of the methods
2: yeah. The, the area where we were working, uh, we weren't there when all the reefs were bad along that, that coast we were working, but several of the villages had made these marine protected areas and just stopped fishing about 10 years before we got there. And so in 10 to 12 years of no fishing, those reefs had recovered pretty well. Um, the other thing you know we've noticed is that once you get those nice reefs, what you can start doing, and, and they've just put buoys and you. You kind of don't go on the left-hand side of the buoy, but you can fish on the right-hand side. You can just sort of start moving those buoys out a little bit and making it broader and broader, and the, the fish populations in the good reef will start eating the seaweeds along the edge of the, the bad reef. That's part of it. Another part is um, we've learned that um, baby fish... Well, let me back up a second. Almost all marine species don't take care of their young. So in other words, it's not like Bambi's mom who, you know, sort of drops her right below him in the forest and takes takes care and teaches her what to do. It's, um, you just throw eggs and sperm up in the water column. They get together or they don't. If they get together, they float around offshore for days to months and develop in the plankton. And then they come back in as these juveniles. And in... Fiji, we discovered that the juvenile fishes of, think about this, 15 different species and six different groups, and so it included herbivores and things that eat invertebrates and carnivores and um, basically all the fish, and most of the coral babies could smell the marine protected areas, and they were attracted to those, and they could smell the overfished areas, and they were repelled by those. And they could even identify which species were in there. So they were, if if you're a coral, they could smell species that were like them and were more attracted to that than different species. They could smell and, and again, identify the species, the seaweeds that most commonly grow on damaged reefs and would avoid that. Ones that are uncommon and grow on both good and bad reefs, they didn't care much about you know so over evolutionary time they have really been um, selected to be very careful and very specific about where they settle if you like this podcast please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes and if you think about this for corals they come in as babies mom doesn't give them any help and they when they settle they glue themselves to the bottom and they can never move again and so that one decision is probably the most important one they ever make in their lifetime. Um, And, you know, we were shocked that the fish were distinguishing these smells and doing things, but, you know, they have fins, they have a nose. Um, Coral larvae are sort of these kind of bags of snot with a little bit of cilia on the outside, and... The fact that they could sense and behave in response to these chemical cues was just, uh, you know, was amazing. I mean, we did it with three different species because we didn't believe it when we did it the first time. And they all did about that same thing. Um, So that's one of the ways that we think we can help and make small tweaks is, is right before the recruitment season. If you get the villagers and you go out and you remove certain seaweeds and you transplant in certain corals, so remove the things that smell bad, transplant in the things that smell good, we think you can enhance the probability of the juveniles coming back in there and growing into populations that will keep the reef healthy.
1: What about rotating like you'd rotate crop fields? Why not do an assessment of all your reef areas and okay. then do a deliberate rotation you know, uh, year by year?
2: Yeah, people in the, you know, uh, the Pacific Islanders have done that over centuries, and they've had these marine protected areas that they call tamboo areas. And if a chief dies, they would say, you know, we're going to make, to honor him, we're going to make this area taboo and you can't fish there for the next five years or something. Or, you know, there were various cultural events that would cause these things to happen. And then after that five years, they might go in and, and fish that very heavily and then set up another area. It was Tambu. And um, so it's sort of like crop rotation, but that was primarily for harvesting fish. And and it works that way if you don't hit it too hard. Now, the, the downside of that is um, depending on the level of fishing, but in places in the Philippines where they had these marine protected areas and then they opened them and let people fish in just a few days, they could deplete almost all the, the harvestable fish. Um, and then it takes quite a while for those to come back. Um, so it, it, it depends on the rate at which things grow and recover. And then it, it also depends on whether those reefs are so degraded that you've lost the corals that attract fish and you've replaced them with seaweeds that don't, or whether you're just removing some, some fish from it. And the coral structure and the chemical signals and all that stays there and continues to attract baby fishes. Um, what we saw in the Caribbean whenever we'd get big bleaching events and stuff is that, that corals would die. And then we just sort of sit there and it didn't recover much. And then you'd get go a few years and you'd get another event and it would die some more. Just never saw much recovery. In the Pacific, we've seen places where there's a big bleaching event and 90% of the corals or even even more are killed. And you go back 10 years later and sometimes it looks great. We're trying to understand, you know, why that difference occurs. Um, and part of it is that the Caribbean is a little unusual and that it has a very small number of species in it. And so it may just be that, you know, there are only a few species that do some important function in the community. And if you lose one of those, the whole thing sort of falls apart. Um, As an example, the two main Acropora species, Elkhorn and Staghorn corals in the Caribbean, created most of the structure of reefs. Now, there were only two species in the Caribbean of that genus. That genus has 140 to 160 species in it in the Pacific. Okay. So, you know, you've got a lot of building blocks there and you only have a few in the Caribbean. And so that, that may be one of the Issues is is uh, just that the bio, that the higher biodiversity may make communities work better, and we've done have, some. Have,
1: uh, have people been able to culture coral or farm it or grow it?
2: Yes, you can you can fairly easily culture coral to a point. In other words, one of the things that we're doing now is we've discovered that if you plant out species A, species B, or species C of coral as as one group, like we do cornfields. You put a whole bunch of species A out in a pile, or B or C. None of those do as well as if we mix A, B, and C together. And they don't survive as well. They don't grow as well. And we're working right now on trying to figure out why that mixed species group does so much better than the single species group in hopes, you know, once we understand that, of um, better managing these outplant conditions. Now, again, in the Pacific, when we've done that, or when others have done it, often it's worked pretty well. In the Caribbean, once they lost all these acroporid corals, they've really tried hard to grow those. And they can grow them back in um, sort of nursery areas nearer shore, and they grow quite well. And then you move them out on the reef and transplant them where they're needed. And they seem to do okay for a few months to two or three years. And then some patches of that have done okay. But many of them just start bleaching from the bottom and and die. And so, um, you know, if you think about it,
1: uh, where are you located
2: physically? I'm in
1: uh, Texas, Texas. Okay. What part of Texas? Uh, Austin, I'm in the middle. I'm not you know, okay, short, okay, near the shore.
2: Okay, Okay. So you're down there with the guys that make my boots. That's good. Heritage boot. I like those guys. Okay. So, um, you know, if, if you went on vacation and you came home and everybody in Austin was dead, you know, to recover Austin, would you go lay babies in the middle of the street? Or would you say, boy, something was wrong here that I've got to fix before we let anybody back into Austin? And so I.
1: You'd I, have to understand the dynamics of what's what are the anchor species or anchor conditions so that everything else can come in?
2: Yeah. And also, you know, what was, what was wrong to start with? I mean, we had, you know, millions of colonies of cropper in the Caribbean and they, most of them died, you know, planting out 10 or a hundred or 10,000 even until you figure out what killed those others. It's, it's an issue. And, and again, I would have argued 10 years ago that overfishing was a big deal and most other things weren't. In recent years, uh, I would, I, I can't argue that anymore. In other words, overfishing is a big deal, it's important, but climate change is uh, really whacking these reefs. You know, we occasionally had warming events that caused bleaching and, and they were rare. And, but in the last, think about this, I think, you know, in the last 10 years, um, the events along the Great Barrier Reef and stuff have increased by something like fivefold, And in, instead of going, you know, 10 or 20 years between a major bleaching event, you're going one, two, or three years down between major bleaching events, which just doesn't give the corals time to recover.
1: Well, what, what happens when the corals bleach? What does it mean? Is it the photosynthetic organisms leaving them and that's why they bleach? Like, what happens?
2: Yeah, so, so when things get too hot for too long, Either the corals expel the symbiotic algae that live in their tissues and that are responsible for feeding the coral for much of its food, or the algae leave. And there, there are arguments both ways. Are, you know, are the algae abandoning the corals or are the corals kicking them out? Um, and when that happens, some of the time, if it's not too bad, the corals recover. If if it stays too hot for too long, and that's more usually more than a few weeks, um, then many of the corals, if not most of them, die. And rather than a few weeks here and there, I think it was 2015, 16. The whole Central Pacific, uh, tropical Pacific, got hotter than than uh, is healthy for it for like 10 months without a break, and there were just these massive bleaching events and stuff there. And so often, when that happens, the corals die. All that dead substrate is out there, and the remaining herbivorous fish can't keep it clean. You know, maybe they were keeping 20% of the substrate clean that wasn't, operated, wasn't covered by corals. And now there's 90% of the substrate, and they can only keep 20 or 30% of it clean. And so you get a bunch of seaweeds that overgrow those corals. And then that whole process of they make the stinky smell. The fish don't come in. The corals don't recruit, and you get reef degradation.
1: Do any creatures like the seaweeds once they're in abundance? Do they come and eat them, or uh, they uh, harvest uh, them for food?
2: A, a few do. There, there are a few um, that are harvested for food by people. Um, there are um, a few fishes that use those seaweeds um, as recruitment areas and stuff. There are a few species, but by and large, you know, for millions of years things have been evolved to use these coral areas and they're attracted to them even the things that eat seaweeds preferentially are when they're babies they're attracted to the corals and i you know our our notion is that when you're little and almost everything out on the reef can eat you it's better to have a safe site than than excess lunch material um And so it it really looks like to us that most of these organisms have been very strongly selected to, um, you know, recognize and be attracted to coral-rich, biodiverse areas that are typical of of reefs of 40 years ago and and really reefs of the past several thousand years. Um, And they're not, um, you know, well-equipped to deal with seaweed-covered areas.
1: So what do you think uh, some of the interventions that will be helpful will be? Or is it first, a lot more understanding needs to? Uh, well, to be, I think you there's know.
2: some things we can do. Now, what, what we're arguing now is, and I'll sort of put it in parallel, um, you know, cellular biologists and biochemists and stuff looked at, at humans. And, you know, we went from when people were sick, we just sort of cut their veins and bleed them, let the bad blood out and, you know, hope, did good blood replace that in some way? And we probably bled a lot of people to death because you know biomedical science was mostly non-existent. We've now learned a lot about you know how that complex system of us operates, and we we can go in and and tweak it here and there with medications and with exercise and with better living and make a big difference in our lifespans and. In the sort of health and vitality of our lives. We're trying to do that same thing with coral reefs, where we understand those chemical signals and we understand how the different animals talk to each other and use that as a way to say, um, you know, here are some particularly critical interactions that we can manipulate either by you know, not fishing this species or by, as you you know suggested, maybe growing some other one and turning it loose. But we're, I don't think we're gonna go out and, and dump chemicals on the reef necessarily. And, <clears throat> you know, have sort of medical intervention in an ecosystem scale, but I do think we're gonna know which species are most critical um, and to be able to use those to leverage communities back to health in some ways. Um, you know, and and just as a I mean, one of the things that we can do by studying this chemical communication is it tells us what has been evolutionarily important. In other words, we we found some corals and little little tiny fish that nobody would think are important that live in in the between the branches of that coral. And I would have argued that seaweeds growing and overkilling corals is probably a thing mostly of the past 40 or 50 years and that it wouldn't have been evolved. You know, corals wouldn't be evolved to deal with that. But in fact, this coral, when we put certain toxic seaweeds next to it, would release a chemical that told the fish living in that coral to come over and eat that seaweed back just enough so it wouldn't touch the coral. Oh, wow. The fish is a bit toxic to start with and becomes more toxic when it eats that toxic alga and therefore gains its its own defense. Um, we could, and, and we know this is chemical because we can move the chemicals from the seaweed onto string and then put those string against the coral and the coral also emits this signal that tells the fish to come over and attack the string. So it's it's all chemically mediated and it's it's very finely tuned. And if seaweeds hadn't been important in, you know, for corals in terms of fighting them off over time, then you wouldn't get this nuanced chemical dance between the coral and the seaweed and the fish going on.
1: Yeah, that's really cool. There's a lot of analogs with land plants. Yeah. You know, certain pests will bug them and they'll emit a chemical that attracts the pest of the pest to get rid of them.
2: Absolutely. This is the, These little fish are sort of, we we paralleled it with ant plants. You know, there are certain plants that have extra floral nectaries that feed ants that live on those plants. And when, when herbivorous insects land on the plant to eat it, the ants grab them by their legs, rip off their legs and their wings and either eat them or pitch them off the plant. So that's kind of what this fish was doing.
1: Does anyone, has anyone been able to successfully recreate a, you know, a, a small reef? Um, in, a, in a a human controlled environment, yes, you know we could have like killer whales in a sea sensor can we have like a a big you know ten thousand gallon tank of coral and fish <laughs> and study
2: that yep, we in fact have those we have that here in atlanta the the Atlanta Aquarium has a very nice coral reef um the uh when I was at the Smithsonian post talk in the early nineteen eighties, a guy there named Walter eighty built a functioning reef in the Smithsonian um there are a number of aquariums around the world that have a basically a captured reef and and they work quite well. You know, so they do know enough about something. You now, we usually have to borrow from nature. You know, you, you go get some corals and things and put them in there, but they they can control the environment enough. Um, and again, in doing that, you know, we learned that. Um, certain wavelengths of light were really important that water motion was really important to sort of you know carry waste away and and supply nutrients have sort of wave generated flow was really important um, at the one at the smithsonian we had some things happen that we just thought were catastrophic um, we you have to use mercury halide lights to generate enough light that's like sunlight to get corals and things to grow and we had a miss you know an unfortunate accident and one of these broke and went into the aquarium and so there's just mercury dumped in the aquarium and we assumed the whole thing would die and go belly up absolutely nothing happened that we could detect you know so some of these are pretty resilient to to some f- sorts of disturbance but not others
1: hmm. um, when you talked about bleaching before you mentioned that it would start from the bottom up um, yep. have you been able to characterize bleaching like why it starts bottom up and what are the factors that affect
2: it? Let me rephrase that. That's not always the case when you have bleaching due to heat. What I think is going on here, and and we are following up on this, is that we think that's a pathogen that is um, attacking the coral from from the substrate up. And um, what we've done in Fiji has shown that when a particular, well, we've looked at a few species, but Let's take Acropora, which is one of the really important coral genera. If we grow Acropora species X in these marine protected areas in Fiji, it produces um, a chemical exudate that suppresses coral pathogens pretty well. If we grow that same coral in the overfished areas that are dominated by seaweeds, even though it grows and survives... Its ability to suppress pathogens is is considerably suppressed, and so um, it looks like you know, in addition to competition from seaweeds and the whole smell thing that we've talked about and stuff, that that the presence of seaweeds is somehow compromising the health of the coral in a way that makes it more susceptible to diseases. And we have preliminary data. I won't say it's convincing yet that. These pathogens are harboring in the sediments, and that the corals are susceptible to, to that whenever they're in a weakened state. And uh, we're running experiments right now in French Polynesia to look at that and try to identify the the particular pathogens and what suppresses those pathogens under normal conditions, and what may exacerbate them under um, you know human caused conditions, and and that might be pollution may you know, favor the pathogen. Um, there are a number of things we're looking at. There have been some groups of animals that have been largely removed from coral reefs that were detrit- detritivores, things that sort of rooted around in the sands and sediments and ate a lot of the organic goo that was in there, um, such as sea cucumbers. And for the last couple of hundred years, there's been huge, huge numbers of those exported from the uh, Pacific to Asian food markets. And um, we have found a few places left, and there are very few, where those sea cucumbers are still abundant. And it looks like the sediments there are harboring these pathogens at at a much lower density um, than in areas where the sea cucumbers have been removed. Now, all of that is sort of speculative right now in other words we we have smoking guns uh, if we can use that term since you're in Austin we should be able to use that um, you know but but we have yet to nail down the pathogen the specific chemistry etc but we're in the process of working really hard on
1: it. have you discovered or has anyone discovered uh, things that can be added to an existing reef to either slow its degradation or you know, improve its lot?
2: You know, by added, um, it depends on how one defines that. I think we can add certain species by not taking them away, you know, in some respects. So, that,
1: no, no. what I mean is like, if I'm, let's say I'm fishing, you know, over a coral area, I'm taking yeah. fish out, can I throw something back in deliberately that will help the coral, even in a small way, even to reduce my, you know, you what know, I do even a little bit?
2: You know, um at present, nothing springs to mind, but people are, are um, innovative and they're, they're exploring things. People are, um, you know, printing, 3D printing corals to put out as um, sort of structural substitutes for live corals and see if you can get enough fish and things coming back in to sort of get uh, the, the virtuous cycle started again. Um, In other words, what what we've been stuck in is sort of a death spiral of where there's fewer fish, so there's fewer corals. Because there's fewer corals, there's fewer fish, and you sort of spiral down. We're trying to reverse that in ways so that it it spirals back up rather than down. Um, Trying to think of ways, in other words, you know, we sort of think that by using some of these chemical stimulators that we might get more baby fish to colonize certain reefs and things like that. We haven't been able to actually test that yet. The place we wanted to do that in Fiji, where we had good relationships and stuff. Um, unfortunately, sort of the the culture there is changing and it's going from being regulated by the chief in each village to being sort of reg- regulated at a federal level. And for us to test this, we need to have the agreement of all the locals so that if things start getting better, they won't just immediately go take all the fish out and it looks like they weren't getting better. You know, we need a, a test that can run for five plus years. And so we're, we're talking to people in French Polynesia, you know, now about trying to erect some of those sort of larger scale tests. We know, what to be, we know how to change the behavior we're just not sure it works on a on a scale that matters for reefs. And I, I think it would, but, you know, I'd like to see the critical test of that rather than me just waving my
1: arms. About. Well, with also with climate change, um, the placement of reefs, I mean, do we know now that, uh, Oh, you know, on average this body of water is about a degree and a half warmer. So if we're going to place any reefs successfully, they have to now be, you know, 35 miles North of where they were on average. Is there, are there like reef belts and areas where they tend to do well, and areas where they tend not to?
0: There's
2: some of that, although um, you know, it's what's happened in the past is no guarantee on what's going to happen in the future. The the things people are working on, there are um, you know. Efforts to try to grow what are called super corals, you kind of look out at, at, you know, there's a thousand corals out here and you have a big bleaching event and and 10 of them survive and everybody else dies. Do they have the, you know, did they happen to be in a micro site that didn't get as hot or, you know, do they have some genetic potential that the others didn't have? And you can kind of breed for that and, and get hardier corals, ones that are hardier to temperature stress back out there. There are a few places around the world where coral reefs do quite well, even though it's extraordinarily hot. Um, There are some, you know, embayments that are kind of cut off that just kind of fry in the sun at times. And in most of those corals are dead, but in some of them in places, corals are thriving. So it it may be that those local sites have selected for that resistance to heat and that you could, you know, use those as source populations to to plant out to other areas. there are certainly notions of uh, what are called source sink populations because, um, like I said, m- almost all of these marine species just throw babies into the water column um, and they come, you know, come back down somewhere else. It's Management is not like when you're managing a forest, you know, if you know how many adult deer are here and you know you know the reproductive rate, you can predict the number of babies next year that's going to be in this forest for Marine organisms, uh, currents may take all the babies thousand miles away, you know, and so managing for one site um, really doesn't work very well. And a, a good example is um, there's a lar- uh, lobster fishery in uh, Bermuda, but it's too cold in Bermuda for lobsters to ever reproduce. They don't reproduce there, even though people catch them year after year after year. And the reason is that the babies are coming from Florida and Belize in the Gulf Stream and are hitting Bermuda and settling out. Um, you know, so you don't have to manage in Bermuda. Uh, if if you overfish Florida, you may kill the lobster fishery in Bermuda. You know, so but but people do realize some of that and they're trying to protect those places that we call source populations, which broadcast the equivalent of seeds to other communities, and you're trying not to, um, you know, put marine protected areas and things that you want to conserve in areas that are sink populations where you're reliant on babies coming in from outside in order to keep the population uh, healthy. In other words, you wouldn't want to set up a um, protected area in um, Bermuda to protect lobsters. You know, they're not going to make babies to export from there because it's too cold.
1: You know, they can live. It is very complicated. You need to know the species of fish and where they migrate and the conditions that each coral will thrive in, et cetera, et cetera. It's a, a big, big project to understand all this.
2: Yeah, it's it's a lot of moving parts. But at the same time, you know, as ecologists, what many of us are trying to do is not understand every little nuance of every species because that would just be overwhelming. But to, to get at the really critical parts of it. and Over and over again, it's it's been shown for many communities, for uh, lakes, for streams, for the rocky intertidal, for coral reefs, that there are a few critical species, often called keystone species, that may not be very abundant, but that make the whole system sort of work. Um, An excellent example of that are sea otters. Um, They're you know if you if you go along the west coast and you take all the biomass of everything. Sea otters aren't a very big part of that biomass, but they eat a huge number of urchins. And when they're eating urchins, they're keeping those urchins from eating kelp, and you get a kelp forest. And that kelp forest makes all the structure that attracts in the other fish and the other invertebrates and the seals and the sea lions, et cetera. Um, Back during the fur trade in the 1800s, early 1900s, we basically went in as humans and removed Uh, most of the sea otters from many places, and many of those converted from species-rich, productive kelp forests to these, uh, what we call urchin barrens. It was just um, crustose coral and algae, which are kind of like a pink paint growing on the rock, and thousands of sea urchins, and there was nothing else much there. You lost the seals, you lost the sea lions, you lost the kelp, you lost all those fish that are associated with the kelp. Um, It was a big deal. And so, you know, by protecting that one species, you fundamentally change, um, you know, much of the community. There was um, probably because of overfishing of other big predators, um, killer whales started eating sea otters in Alaska, oh, 30 years ago. And they ate almost all of them. And like a thousand miles of Alaska changed from productive kelp beds into urchin barrens. So you know it,
1: do you think that um fish and other creatures do, you know can do long-term, long term long long range sensing if i'm at a certain reef and my goal is to get to another reef you know 1000 miles away yeah. do i have any guidance system or way to reach it hasn't have you seen that kind of behavior with no, any animals big,
2: big fish can do some of that uh, there's a woman named Barbara Bach at um Stanford that has radio tagged big sharks, some of the big billfish, some of the uh, big pinnipeds, sea lions, um, seals. And she shows them at times swimming uh, a very long distance, hundreds of miles, using a feeding area or or reproductive area, whatever they're doing out there, and then swimming back to where they came from. And so, um, you know, that certainly happens. Now, most fish on coral reefs um, settle on that reef and probably never move more than 30 meters from where they settled. So most of them are very home site specific. Um, but big fish, you know, sharks, um, jacks, um, tuna, you know, these things travel over huge distances. Um, and, and they do appear to uh, use, um, you know, light, use magnetic, um, signals, different ones do different things. Um, There's been some turtle studies where uh, Ken Lohman at uh, um, UNC Chapel Hill built this sort of cage-like thing in a room where he could alter the magnetic signals and he put baby turtles in these tubs in there. And you could go in and, and I'm going to make this up. I don't remember the specifics, but like, you know, they're all sort of swimming north and bumping their heads against the north end of the tubs they were in. You could flip this switch, which was the equivalent of reversing the magnetic signals of the Earth, as far as they were concerned, and they'd look confused for a second, and then they'd all turn around and go bump their heads against the southern end of the pool they were in. You know, so quite clearly, they were using magnetic, um, you know, lines of some sort to navigate.
1: Very good. Um, we're just about out of time. I'm sure. getting a, a better appreciation of how complex this is and how much there is to figure out. I'm glad that you know you're working on it and others. Yeah. Um, what's the best way for people to keep tabs on your work and to find out more
2: oh i'm I'm not very good about my, upgrading my website and that stuff but um you know to do do a search on my name for papers that come out I guess um uh, we do things with you know when we have particularly exciting results we work with uh, New York Times or time or Newsweek or National Geographic or others to try to get things out to people in other words we we do feel that it's important when we find things that you and others would be would find interesting to try to tell you about it because we're using mostly your tax money to try to discover these things we want to pay back. Um, you know, the other thing is just check, you know, my website, which is uh, in, in Georgia Tech, just under my name. If you Googled it, it'll come up.
1: Okay, very good. Well, Mark, it's been great to talk to you and uh, I learned a lot and I appreciate you being here.
2: Okay, well, great to talk to you, and uh, good luck with making this into something useful. (laughs) If you like this podcast, please click the link
0: in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs.